Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Rachel Edelman, Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible at Hebrew College, and today I have invited Sarit Katan Gribitz to speak about her book, Time and Difference in Rabbinic Judaism, published in 2020, just this past year, um, by Princeton University Press. In this first monograph, Professor Katan Gribitz shows us how the rabbis construct time to delineate difference between Jews and others, between men and women, and between God and human beings. In comparing classic rabbinic sources with archaeological artifacts, Roman legal discourse, and early Christian homilies, She demonstrates how Jewish identity is constructed through difference in the annual and weekly rhythms of time. She then turns to the gendered nature of time as it is measured over the course of the day. And in the final chapter, the idea of divine time within the measure of the hour. Before we open our conversation, um, I want to give our listeners a little background about you, Sarit, and then invite you to fill in the gaps. Sarit Katan Gribitz is Associate Professor of Jewish Studies at Fordham University in New York. She completed her doctorate in Religious and Jewish Studies at Princeton University, studied Talmud and archaeology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem as a Fulbright Fellow, learned Arabic at Middlebury College, held postdoctoral fellowships at the Jewish Theological Seminary and Harvard University, and taught at the University of Toronto. She spent a year as a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Jerusalem, where she participated in research groups on ancient timekeeping, as well as on late antique conceptions of the self. Sarit is a fellow at the Jewish Theological Seminary and a student at Yeshivat Maharat, which I didn't know about that. Very interesting. A yeshiva yeshiva that ordains women to serve as Orthodox clergy in the Jewish community. She lives in the Bronx with her family. So welcome, Professor Katan Gribitz. So nice to have you here today. Thank you for having me. And also thank you for reading my book. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. Is there anything you would like to add to the official bio that would enhance our understanding of your work? Um, Well, um, I begin my book by explaining that as a child, I lived in multiple temporal worlds. Being raised by two parents with two different conceptions of time meant that time was not invisible, as it so often can be. Um, Rather, time was present at home 
largely in the, the dis in the disjunction between my parents' senses of punctuality, coming as they did from two different parts of the world, each with their own temporal culture. Looking back, I realized that the book's overarching argument, the conce that conceptions and organizations of time construct difference and create identity, is very much related to understanding my own experiences growing up. Um, so that's maybe part of my personal biography that fits into the book. So I understand your father is, is uh, Iraqi-Israeli? Yeah, an Iraqi Israeli. And your mother is Swiss originally. Yeah. So uh, Swiss are very precise in their keeping of time, right? Yekis. And uh, and your father was, you know, Jewish time, a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting. Uh, and so you grew up with those kind of contradictions. And, and they, so the book came came out of that personal experience or you you just understood that time can be conceived in different ways? Um, yes, I think that I, as I was working on time, I started to think about time, not only in the ancient sources, but I started understanding how time works also in my own life mm -hmm. um, in, in ways that are very similar to the ways in which time worked also in the sources that I was looking at. Um, so on the one hand, I was able to look back at my childhood experiences and to understand the very large role that time played in my own family dynamics. And another aspect is that I started working on this project um, in the months after my twin daughters were born. Mm -hmm. And so I was someone who had gone from having complete autonomy over my time to mm -hmm. someone being bound to the schedules of two very needy oh infants. And so I went from having so much time to having no time at all. Um, I think that and, and being on their schedule first, the hospital hospital schedule and then their nursing schedule. And so I think sort of these shifts in the way that we experience time help us see how much time is present in the way that we live our lives, the way we organize our communities, the way we um, um, think about um, and function as societies. Um, I'll mention also that in the introduction, um, I raise the tension, and this is a tension that I still face, of living between multiple calendars. So mm -hmm. the official calendar of the United States, the Jewish calendar that begins not in January, but in the fall, each with its own set of holidays and days off that are rarely synchronized. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and I'll mention that it's not unique to me, right, that many of us live in multiple calendars. We have an academic calendar that starts in September. Um, we have, well, in the US, we have a calendar that starts in September. Um, we have the fiscal year um, that here in the US begins January 1st. We have the calendar year that begins January 1st. And so um, I think it is a common experience to be living between multiple um, timeframes. And the points of intersection or conflict are often those moments where we realize that the way we organize our time is anything but 
inevitable or natural and has so much to do um, with history um, and and with with culture and identity right the identity one chooses exactly um so what prompted you to write this book time and difference how does it intersect with your doctoral work and how does it bring together your broad spectrum of interests um when I was in my first year of graduate school, I took a class about St. Augustine with Peter Brown. And one of the readings that we had was a sermon that Augustine delivered in 404 in a congregation in Carthage. He delivered the sermon on January 1st which was the calends of January, the Roman New Year. And in the year 404, um, the calends of January was an official festival in the Roman Empire that at that point was a Christian Roman Empire. And yet this bishop was vehemently opposed to his congregants participating in what he considered to be Roman pagan worship on that day. And so for him, marking that time was an expression of one's identity. If he could keep his congregants in the church and prohibit them from going out and celebrating with the other Romans, Mm -hmm. he could ensure that they would be good Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the sermon is a moment in which a member of a religious um, community asserts that participating in the time of one community marks you as a member of that community. And at the same time, I was also studying Tractate Avodah Zarah in the Babylonian Talmud, which also begins by exhortations not to participate in the festivals of the Romans. And the first festival that the Mishnah lists is the Calends of January, the very same festival that Augustine um, came out so strongly against. And so realizing that on the one hand, we have Christian bishops who are urging their congregants not to go out and celebrate the Roman Calends and rabbis doing the same sort of urging made me realize that there's something about the way that we mark festivals and the way we organize time um, that mattered a lot to these authorities in the ancient world. And that's how I started exploring the topic more generally of time. Mm-hmm. And then you and then you went on to look at gender and 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 uh and divine time and it it's just such a huge amount of research really a wide-ranging collection of primary sources in the original greek and and latin and just and comprehensive scholarship uh, and yet the book is so accessible uh, you don't get bogged down in scholarly jargon um, so i really commend you uh, tremendous work uh, so how did you decide to organize the book? Um, the, the overarching argument of the book 
is that the rabbis use timekeeping and discourses about time to construct social, political, and theological difference. Mm -hmm. And in each of my chapters, I look at one of those differences. So I look in the first chapter on imperial difference that distinguished rabbinic time from Roman time. In the second chapter, I look at communal difference that separated Jewish time from Christian time. In the third chapter, I look at gender difference that divided men's time from women's time. And in the fourth, I look at the difference between divine and human time. So what I um, what I do is I, I go from the imperial to the communal to the intracommunal and then to the relationship between the human and the divine. But I also organize the book not only around configurations of difference, but also according to units of time. So the first chapter on Roman rabbinic difference is based on the unit of the year, the annual cycle. The chapter on Jewish Christian time is based on the weekly cycle, and in particular, the weekly Sabbath or Sunday, um, the Lord's Day. In the chapter on men and women's time, I focus on the unit of the day and specifically on rituals um, and experiences that mark the start and end of the day, both in the evening and also in the morning. And then finally, in the chapter on human divine time, I look at the unit of the hour, so the subdivisions of the day and the way in which the unit of the hour is the unit of time that is used in rabbinic sources to explore the relationship between human and divine. The, the book moves from these spheres of difference and these temporal units um, inwards and then upwards, but it is very focused on the unit of the day. So mm -hmm. I look at specific special days of the year, special days of the week, the way that the day begins and ends and then the way that the day is subdivided. And the argument of the book is that it's in all of these spheres that difference is constructed. And each of the key studies in the chat in the book demonstrate one way in which that happens. I don't suggest or I don't intend to suggest that Roman rabbinic difference is only constructed on the annual cycle, but it's to say that communities and individuals use time in many different ways to construct many different kinds of configurations between communities and between individuals in those communities. Yes, excellent. Um, so we're going to zero in on each of those chapters. And I picked out, you know, one particular one or few questions for each of the chapters. And so let's look at chapter one together. And in chapter one, you discuss the difference between Jews and how they characterize themselves vis-a-vis -vis Roman pagan festivals. The focus is on, as you pointed out, Masachet Abu Dazara, which is the tractate that deals with uh, idolatry. And... Um, you look at how the rabbis in the Talmud retell the origin of four festivals, the Kalends, the Saturnalia, Cretesis, and Genusia. Is that the right pronunciation? Okay. Um, so I'm going to invite you to choose 
one of those festivals and maybe take us through a discussion of what is going on in the Babylonian Talmud. Maybe let's, I'm going to throw it out there. Let's look at the Kalends, right? The origin of Rome. And tell me what the Palestinian Talmud is doing with the myth of the origin of Rome and what this what this holiday is all about, how they tell their version of that holiday, and and what the Babylonian Talmud is doing. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I'll, I'll just note that this is um, the stories that are told about Cretaceous which is a Roman festival that's actually um, not widely attested in Roman sources. Um, and it is a festival that the rabbis really struggled to define. And they ask this question, what is this festival, right? Why are we not supposed to uh, do commerce before and after this particular festival? And they offer multiple answers, but the overarching theme is that this is a holiday on which Rome expanded its rule into the Eastern territories in some way. And the Palestinian Talmud gives a story for the ascendance of Rome. And what I argue in the book is that what the rabbis are doing is they are participating in a Roman tradition of telling the history of Rome. That telling the history, the, the origins of Rome was a Roman practice and the rabbis do that, but they do it in their particular Roman way, which is as rabbis who find the Roman empire to be an oppressive force as they presented in rabbinic sources. So the story that they tell, it begins with King Solomon and King Solomon's uh, marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh and in the biblical sources, this causing Solomon to participate in idolatrous worship caused an angel Michael to put a reed into muddy alluvial waters in the region of Italy. Um, and out of that, the geological origins of Rome were formed. Hmm. So what they do is they begin Rome's history with a Jewish king, an Israelite king. And the story proceeds from there. The second moment in the story is, um, is another Israelite king and another instance of idolatry causing the foundation of, um, of the physical city of Rome um, through Remus and Romulus. So we have on the one hand, the sin of two um, golden calves being erected um, by Israelite kings mirroring the twin brothers who, um, who set up Rome. And then in the third, we have um, the third idolatrous Israelite king who's... Who, in whose rule um, Elijah um, dies and, well, doesn't die, is taken up into the heavens um, and, um, and, and that Elijah's death 
causes this last stage in Roman history, which is um, the establishment of a um, of Rome's second king, Numa, who likewise um, is found as the next ruler of Rome after Romulus ascends to heaven in um, a whirlwind very similar to that of Elijah. And so what we have is sort of the mapping of Roman history onto Israelite history. (laughs) And the rabbis are saying um, the Roman Empire grew and succeeded not as a result of um, Roman piety and not as a result of Roman military strength or strategy, but Rome ascended to power because of Israelite idolatry. So the sin of idolatry caused Rome to to rise. And remember, Rome is the empire that destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and is remembered as such in these sources. Um, And so it serves in a way as a warning to contemporary hearers of this story to say, if you continue or if you adopt idolatrous ways, Rome will continue to, to oppress you. And so the way to resist Roman rule is to abstain from participating in idolatrous Roman activities, including the Roman calendar. Wow. Wow. And, and what's the Babylonian version of that retelling? The Babylonian story is very different. Yeah. It's a story in which um, it, it imagines a different military encounter, and it imagines Rome and Greece to be in a military encounter that cannot be won by either side through military force, but rather through a different force, which is the force of the Torah. And so at some point, the Greeks and the Romans lay down their arms and Rome sends a message to Greece and says, um, we have the Torah on our side. Um, And it does so through an elaborate um, tale. Um, And as soon as their adversaries hear that they have made an alliance with um, with the Jews, and they have Torah, and they have the Jewish God on their side, they realize they can no longer win this battle, and Rome is victorious. And so in this story, it's not Israelite sin that causes Rome to succeed. It's actually Israelites or Jewish devotion to God and the Torah that allows Rome, um, through its alliance with the Jews, to succeed as an empire. The Babylonian Talmud is quick to add that the Roman alliance with the Jews uh, soon deteriorated such that then the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple. But in its earliest moment, the Roman Empire had made an alliance with the Jews, and the text wants to highlight that as the Jewish contribution to the greatness of Rome. Fantastic, fantastic. So on the one hand, they're saying the foundation of Rome uh, happened because of the Jews' sins. That's in the Palestinian Talmud. And in the Babylonian Talmud, they're saying Roman success is because of the Jews. Like It's an extreme uh, um, kind of a solipsism on the part of that. Well, it's all because of us, right? All God, right? Um, um, so I, I wondered in what way 
you're now, I'm going to ask a methodological question. In what way are you getting away from the polemics versus anti-polemics? Which is, I mean, I grew up with that. I mean, in at Hebrew University, it was it was all the rage to talk about anti-Christian polemics or or uh, anti-Judaism. Or it seems to me you're doing something very different in your analysis. I wondered if you could unpack your methodology here. Thank you. So I. I don't want to suggest that there isn't polemic in these stories <laughs> because there so obviously is. Right. But what I did in particular with the Roman rabbinic material is jump into all of the stories that we have about the origin of these festivals. Mm-hmm not only rabbinic, but also Roman, and realizing that, and this is not my own insight, but it's based on the insights of other scholars. Um, the, the person who comes to mind most immediately is Mary Beard, who, um, who has an article in which she argues that there are different etiologies for the same Roman festival that were created to fulfill the needs of different Roman communities, Roman authors, different stages in Roman history. And so we have, and this we have also in the history of Jewish festivals where Jewish holidays have agricultural significance and then they also have historical significance and festivals are dynamic things that change over the course of history depending on what each community needs and how it sees its own history and its own sort of sense of identity in relation to its holidays. And so there wasn't one meaning or one reason for each of the Roman holidays, even in Roman sources. So we have Plutarch and we have Macrobius and we have various authors who each tell their own version of the history of these Roman festivals and why those festivals are are celebrated. And what I wanted to suggest in the chapter is that rabbinic sources are one manifestation or one example of that Roman practice. And so their etiology of the calends of January or of Saturnalia or of Cratesis are not quote unquote merely polemics, but they're also part of this practice. And they're part of the practice that finds a place for the rabbis in the Roman story. And that place overwhelmingly is a pl- is an antagonistic place, and yet it's still a very Roman place. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Great. So it sounds like it's more functional and um, malleable, the way that these the, this conception of time is being framed here. Um, if I if I could use an analogy, maybe dynamic. to um, to the to our contemporary times. It's as though we we cannot imagine, for example, what it means to have a Roman, uh, uh, sorry, a an American version of um, July Fourth, for example. Um, there are many different ways of narrating the day when 
the independence of the United States was declared. Um, and so different communities narrate that story in different ways. Um, and um, I, I have in mind, for example, um, Frederick Douglass's um, speech about um, what's the 4th of July to someone who is enslaved. Um, and so what I wanna suggest is all of those stories about the origins of the United States um, that are celebrated on the 4th of July, all of those stories, including the stories that are critical of that moment, are American versions and stories and conceptions mm. of uh, the American calendar. And in the same way, rabbinic sources about the Roman calendar, even when they are critical of the Roman Empire, are Roman stories of Roman origin. Really interesting. Really interesting. And I guess the same applies for Thanksgiving. And and Thanksgiving, there's a lot uh, uh, critique about how we're telling the story of the the founders of the of America. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I want to move on to question uh, to chapter two on different attitudes to the Sabbath, the way that the week is constructed. Um uh, where you sample anti-Jewish polemics in Roman and Christian sources. Um, so I want to go back to the question of how the Lord's Day gets shifted from Saturday, that is the Jewish Sabbath, to Sunday in Christian sources, um, and how the Christian sources denigrate the Sabbath, and why. You know, maybe and if you want to choose one story, I really like the story about the spice, the missing spice. <laughs> I love that. But that, that, that's, those are my questions. Um, I'll definitely tell the story of the missing uh, spice. <laughs> it's also one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> um, well, as with every history, the history of the Christian Lord's Day is a complicated history. And so um, I, I will say for those who want the full story, um, it's there in chapter two. Um, in brief, we have a really interesting phenomenon in which we have a, a, a set of communities in antiquity um, that are part of the larger constellation of Jewish communities in the first century and in, in the second century um, that slowly, and I will add messily and in various ways in different communities at different times, start to separate from the Jewish community in all sorts of ways because of their um, devotion to Jesus Christ. Those communities eventually come to be called Christians um, but the process by which they separate um, themselves and other Jewish communities separate from them is a messy story. And what I want to suggest is that time, the organization of time, was one of the ways in which some of these communities made that change happen. I mentioned in the introduction of my book a story that is told in a medieval compilation of texts called Toldot Yeshu, um, 
in which, and this is not a historical account, but it's a satirical and it's a deeply polemical account of this history of the separation of Jewish and Christian communities, um, Paul comes to Jesus followers. Paul serves in this text as an undercover agent for the Jewish community in order to convince Jesus followers to form a different religion rather than staying among the Jews. And he says he had um, a a revelation from Jesus who told him to communicate to his followers that instead of celebrating the Jewish Sabbath, they ought to celebrate the Christian Sunday. And instead of celebrating Passover, they ought to celebrate Easter. And instead of Shavuot, to celebrate Pentecost. And he goes through the entire Jewish calendar and he offers alternatives for Christians to follow. And what I love about this story is that it highlights how much the separation of the day that you mark as sacred functions on a sociological level to separate communities from one another. And this is an insight that I learned from the work of Eviatar Zerubavel, um, who is a sociologist of time um, and whose book, The Seven Day Cycle, um, really helped me understand um, the way that this worked. So what we have in antiquity is different Christian communities either celebrating the Sabbath in their own way on Saturday or celebrating a new sacred day, Sunday, or a combination of the two. And along with those developments also came polemics against the way that Jews themselves practice the Sabbath. So among those critiques were that Jews um, celebrate the Sabbath in the wrong way. On the one hand, um, Jews, um, and this we have attested in rabbinic sources as well, Jews um, eat food, um, but what they do is they eat food that um, can't be cooked on the Sabbath, and so they eat food that is a day old and that is presumably disgusting, um, and they smell bad because there was a an idea that Jews fasted on the Sabbath, which is not correct, it seems, but might come out of an idea that when you don't cook, you might also not eat on the Sabbath, um, that and so on, that Jews celebrate the Sabbath in really carnal ways, in bodily ways. And there were Christian um, uh, authors who were very explicit that doing so was theologically problematic and that Christians ought to celebrate the sacred day, whether that was Sunday or Saturday, in spiritual ways. The story that's told, um, uh, uh, one of the stories that's told in both uh, the Midrash Genesis Rabbah and in the Babylonian Talmud is of a rabbi and a Roman emperor. And I'll leave them nameless because they have different identities in the various versions. But there is a rabbi who happens to be hanging out on the Sabbath and gets an impromptu visit by the Roman emperor who's hungry. And so the rabbi has a dilemma, which is, what is he going to serve the Roman emperor on a day when he can't cook? And so he brings out the, the cold foods that he has for the Sabbath. And the Roman emperor eats them and finds them absolutely delicious. 
So much so that he visits the rabbi again, this time not on the Sabbath, but on one of the days of the week. And the rabbi is over, overjoyed because he can now prepare a proper, warm, fresh meal for the emperor. The emperor tries this warm food and enjoys it, but admits to the rabbi that it wasn't nearly as delicious as the food he had previously on the Sabbath. And the emperor, you get the sense that the emperor is a little bit ticked off at the rabbi for not having prepared the same food again. And the rabbi responds by saying, well, um, I can't make the same food. And the ra the emperor says, well, does the royal pantry lack anything? Can't I get anything for you to make me the same delicious food as last time? And the rabbi says, yes, actually, the Roman um, emperor's pantry does lack something, and it lacks the Sabbath. It's a play on words because um, the the, the word for the Sabbath and the word for dill can be interchangeable. So it, the, the royal pantry lacks the Sabbath, but it also lacks a spice. Um, but what I love about this story is that it was told in, the, in Genesis Rabbah, which is a 5th century Midrash, in the Roman Galilee, in precisely the decades when the Roman Empire was Christianizing and was Christianizing both spatially, especially in the Galilee and then the region of Jerusalem. It's the period when we have imperial churches being built, where we have imperial um, pilgrimages being brought to the Galilee and to Jerusalem. And then we also have the temporal Christianization of the Roman Empire. So this happens in the fourth century with Constantine, but then we also have Roman legal sources that remind us that um, when Constantine introduces the Lord's Day on Sunday as a day of rest, that was something that needed to be constantly reaffirmed and expanded upon in the hundred years or so after Constantine. And so we're in a context in which the rabbis are living in an empire and in a region that just declared the su Sunday to be the, the sacred day. And in their story, the Roman empire, emperor actually affirms that the Sabbath is the sacred day. And it's so sacred yeah, it's so sacred that um, even the food tastes differently. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I read this story as a really good example of the way in which the rabbis conceptualize their own sacred time in the context of the way in which other people are conceptualizing their own sacred time and also the time of the rabbis. Right, right. Um, and it's kind of fantasy. So they're turning the anti-Jewish... Uh, rhetoric, right? The Sabbath is carnal. Uh, they're depriving themselves. They don't know how to eat properly on the Sabbath. And it turns around and says, no, actually, the food is absolutely just delicious. And the Roman Empire emperor is lacking something that we've got. You know, it's, it's just it's such a great little fantasy of, of Jewish uh, subversive, you know, um, self-identity. It's a really uh, wonderful story. Um, yeah, so uh, let's move to chapter three, which, I mean, 
really for me, chapter three and four were so lively. Because um, it really touched on, on my own interests. Uh, so let's look at chapter three. So I just, a uh, quick summary. Um, so time for Jewish men, in your analysis, time for Jewish men revolves around the recitation of the Shema twice daily. And for women, it revolves around checking their, for their menstrual impurity. Also uh, in the evening and in the morning. And yet women are exempt from the so-called time-bound commandments. Now, how did this happen, right? Why? It seems that they are very much bound by time. Um, so what is this? How is time-bound commandment being defined? How is gender being created by this discrepancy? I thought the comparisons were so compelling and very original, um, the way that you juxtapose these two con concepts of time. So if you could trace that trajectory uh, over for the Shema and then for menstrual cycle and how gender is being construed through those two, um, through those two commandments. Yeah. And then I have another question to throw at you. <laughs> That's a big, uh, that was a big one. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, the cover of my book has an image that I'm really Do you have grateful. A picture of it? Because I don't have the yeah, show us that. Um, it has a, a drawing that was created by uh, Jacqueline Nichols, um, and it is a depiction or an, an interpretation of the opening page of um, the Babylonian Talmud, which is also the first, the very first word um, of the Mishnah. So it's the first word with which the rabbinic corpus begins is the question, me'ematai, uh, from when? And the question that is asked in this Mishnah is from when in the evenings, how early can we begin reciting the Shema prayer? And for anyone who studied rabbinic sources knows the first debate in the Mishnah is a debate about time. When does the evening start? How late into the evening can one recite the Shema? When does the morning start? How late into the morning can one recite the morning Shema? And we get the impression from this debate that it's really important to say the Shema, and it's really important to say it twice a day, and it's really important to say it at the right time. And why might this be the case? We can give many different answers, but I think at least one of them is that the regular statement or declaration of devotion to God and to community and to commandments was an integral component of what it meant to be a rabbinic Jew for the Mishnah. And what surprised me as I read these sources is that there's a line later on in uh, the discussion that says there are certain people who just don't have to recite the Shema. Um, and among those people are enslaved people um, and, um, and another category are women. And so I thought, what does this mean that one of the central ways in which the rabbis of the Mishnah and then all the way through classical rabbinic sources, 
conceive of their time is a practice from which women are excluded. And, um, and then we have the larger question of time-bound commandments. So the Shema, women are exempted from the Shema for particular reasons, but they're also exempted from the larger category that rabbis come up with called time-bound commandments. Um, into which the Shema eventually fits, um, which are rituals and practices that need to be done at particular times. And so the traditional view of these sources is that women are not bound by time in the same way. And there are many different apologetic reasons given in medieval sources for women's exemption from these sources or from these practices. But as I as I continued studying rabbinic sources, I realized that actually women are very time bound um, and they have many, many rituals that require them to count their days and to do particular rituals in the mornings and in the evenings at times that are actually remarkably similar to the times when men recite the morning and evening Shema. And those are the rituals of menstrual purity and impurity. And so what I realized was that on the one hand, rabbinic sources create a whole ritual system um, for men that is related to how men ought to mark their times. Um, but they And they mark this as time bound. But then also we have this whole set of rituals for women that are equally time bound, but that are marked as having nothing to do with time. Um, and so we have two levels. It's on the one hand, the practical rituals that are required of men and women that differ, but then also on a rhetorical level, the way that men and time, men's time and women's time is talked about is also very different. And so the chapter sort of goes back and forth between the history of these practices and how they develop and also how rabbinic sources choose to narrate those yeah. Um, those distinctions. And I'll just, I'll say one of the sort of critiques or pushback that I have received from colleagues in making this comparison is that the rabbis are rarely explicit about the connection. Um, and my response to this critique is that the rabbis um, imagine their rules and laws and discussions to be a part of a cohesive system. So the Mishnah is redacted and it has many, many tractates on many different things. And it's imagined to be the rules for communities. And so even when they don't make the the connection explicitly, I think we as scholars can look at the sources yeah. and point things out that are not necessarily um, yeah. explicit in the text themselves. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. So Shema, I just want for those who don't know of our listening, Shema is not actually a prayer. It's a statement of allegiance. Yes, we will obey, obey God and we will live with this cognizance of the centrality of Torah and obedience all throughout our days. And then it becomes focused on it becomes ritualized and you use the word ritual in a, in a very powerful way it becomes ritualized twice a, twice a day so it's not a prayer exactly it's just like um and i think the way that you characterize it you said that both the shema and 
you know, stating that those three paragraphs that are essentially citations from Deuteronomy and, and Numbers, saying those three paragraphs twice a day is just as much as an, an embodied practice as checking one's menstrual fluid, right? I thought that was great. Um, the other thing that I thought was very compelling is that the Shema, it, 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 uh, they derive the tradition about sta- uh, stating it twice a, twice a day and exempt women because it's connected to learning, right? Um, connected to the learning of the Torah. And you suggest that it's really a movement outward towards relationship with God. Whereas the woman's checking of her body is a is a turn inward. Now I I like I thought that was very compelling. So I'm thinking about the contemporary Jewish response, what that might be. Um, and in your conclusion, uh, brilliant conclusion, because you you don't do this summary, which always bores me to tears. But you you take all of this amalgam of a tremendous research and scholarship and you take it to um, the medieval and then the modern and then the contemporary context. So I'm thinking, well, what is the modern contemporary Jewish uh, response to this gendering of time? So what happens when women become more observant and take on time-bound commandments? And what might be the artistic response Right? How is, are we getting away from gender time or are we changing these con- conceptions? So if you could weigh in on that, that's, I know that's another big question, but <laughs> yeah. So let's think about the contemporary Jewish response to this division of time. So before we get to the contemporary, can we stop for a moment um, in the medieval early modern period? Because um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I came across a source that I wish I would have seen before I wrote that conclusion. Um, And that is a passage in the Shulchan Aruch, um, uh, one of the uh, legal codes of Jewish law. Um, that discusses, in particular, the timing of women's menstrual checks. And it has this beautiful analogy, or it's actually, it's not an analogy. It has this beautiful line. And it says that what happens if a woman forgot to do her menstrual check before um uh, the, like during during the day as the night approaches, how late can she do that check, right? So it's a question that's very similar to how late can a woman, uh, can a man say the um, Shema? Right. And the answer or the, the question is, what if they already began reciting the Shema in the synagogue? Can she do her check? And they literally say, if it's before the prayer of Baruch Hu, which is the first um, thing that you say in the 
the sequence of the Shema? What if it's after Baruch Hu? And so they, they, what they imagine is that the clock of the community is synchronized, that the women are checking their bodies such that they're done before presumably the men are saying Shema in the synagogues or at home. And yet the dilemma is when those times, men's times and women's times are not synchronized. And so they say if men say the Shema before they technically need to, does that disqualify the woman from checking her body, even though technically it's still time for her to check her body? And what I love about this discussion is that it reminds us that the texts and the connections that are made between these practices in antiquity have a very long afterlife. One of my favorite moments in this afterlife um, is uh, an artistic installation um, that was created by um, a, a Jewish ecofeminist artist named Helen Ilone that I encountered in Jerusalem at the Museum on the Seam. And in this video installation, you see Ilone's menstrual calendar from the decades in which she was married. And what you see, it's the Gregorian calendar and the Jewish calendar synchronized. And she has marked the days of her menstruation. And she's marked the seven clean days that women wait after their menstrual periods. And then the clean days. And you can put earphones on and listen to a very simple narration of this calendar where she set where she narrates the, the distinction between clean days and impure days. And as I listened to this repetition of these days, day after day after day, um, I realized that for women who continue to practice these menstrual purity laws, the time of menstruation is not a tangential aspect of life. It's really a temporally defining one. Knowing whether you're in the time of purity or of impurity was a daily task. Um, it's a, a, a task of counting your time. Um, it's a, a task of checking your body. And it determines how you operate as a person as a body in the world and in relationship to other people, in particular, um, the, the person uh, to whom you're married. Um, and so um, that's one way in which um, these laws that originate in the Bible and then develop in the rabbinic sources as well um, continue to impact people's lives. Um, I think I'll stop there. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Um, so I want to turn to chapter four, which is actually one of my favorites. And I'm sorry, we're, we're sort of getting towards the end of our hour. But um, I want to invite you, I mean, it's full of whimsical sources. And um, there was one abiding question, because of course, it, it touches on my own interests, um, that you chose not to highlight the difference. When you're looking at divine time, you chose not to highlight the difference between Kairos and Kronos. That is between end time, like the time that's saturated with significance of the eschaton and mundane time. You sort of said, no, I'm not going to go there. And you made a choice uh, and you decided to look at how God spends his time hour by hour. 
Um, so what informed that choice uh, on your part um, when you when you go into theology and in Agada in that way? And um, and then I'm going to invite you to look to to share one of your favorite passages. So the the answer to both questions is actually connected, which is that the chapter began with a single source. And that source was a short narrative in the Babylonian Talmud that asks, what does God do with the hours of the day? And the answer is that God actually has a schedule that God follows. Um, God spends three hours studying Torah. God spends three hours um, judging the world. God spends three hours feeding uh, the creatures of the world and sustaining them. And then God spends three hours playing with Leviathan. So I didn't approach this chapter. I didn't even know I was going to write the chapter originally, um, thinking sort of very broadly about God's time. I started rather with um, one way in which the rabbis imagined God to spend time and in a way that surprised me, which is that the rabbis know exactly what God does during the day, um, down to the hour. Um, And as I started digging and exploring, I realized that this was a question that was not um, of of little importance to to the rabbis, but in fact, it is a narrative and a, a part of a set of narratives that really wonders, like, what is God doing? There's God has so much time. Um, what could po- God possibly be doing? And over and over again in um homiletic sources, in midrashic sources, uh, in targumim, in um, in these translations of the Bible into Aramaic, in liturgical poetry, um, sources circle back again and again to the question of what God does um, with so many hours in the day. Um, and one of the overarching themes of the answers to these questions is that God spends all of the daytime hours focused on the world, um, so focused on all of the creatures in the world, um, focused in particular on the people of Israel. Um, so it goes from all of the creatures to people to Israel. Um, and that the way that God spends God's time and prioritizes time is a reflection of God's values. So where the rabbis see in God's schedule a real devotion to caring for the world. And then on the other hand, uh, we have a very different situation with God's nighttime hours, which is that the rabbis are not sure what God does during the night. So they offer possibilities And then they sort of leave it as a mystery. And I think that this is not an accident. I think it fits into a larger conception of the nighttime as sort of a mysterious time, both positively, like this is the time where God communes with the angels and it's this sort of mystical, um, experiential time. And on the other hand, also um, a dangerous time um, because one doesn't exactly know what God is up to and one can't see other things. And so um, to, to get back to the question of why I didn't focus on Kairos and Kronos, um, I think the answer is that um, I, I was I started with the texts and I went to where the texts took me um, in, in this constellation rather than thinking of my own conception of what it meant 
to have divine and, and human time and then sort of imposing that on rabbinic sources. Yeah, yeah. I thought also there was something about what you were really concerned in, with, which is the intersection between God and this world, right? And there's a there's a there's a sort of prohibitive, um, I mean, explicitly in Masachet Chagiga, where it says you're not allowed to talk about what is after and what is before and what is above and what is below, and yet the rabbis want to know where are the contact points between God and this world, right? If God's learning Torah, he's modeling the learning of that, we, that that's what we should be engaging. If, if God is judging the world, then then we are his subjects uh, or God's subjects being judged. And, and God is feeding all the animals, right? And then, and then yes, this and, oh. little Leviathan, right? <laughs> he's playing with this little fish, <laughs> big fish. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, and, and I'll say that I think actually sort of the the time of creation and the eschatological time are part of the story. And, and we see that especially with the Leviathan, but also in other ways, the rabbis are concerned with knowing what did God do during each hour of the sixth day of creation when God created yeah. Adam or Adam and Eve, depending on the version of the story. Um, yeah. And and again, they're concerned with the conversations that God has with people after they die about how they spent their time. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, um, God spends, you know, all the hours of the sixth day very carefully creating Adam and Eve and also punishing them and exiling them. Um, and so we get this sort of the entire history of humanity in one day, right? From pre-creation and the creation of humanity all the way to sort of the final redemption. And it's a story that's told on Rosh Hashanah, um, on the Jewish New Year, as rabbinic sources imagine it. And so um, it's also about sort of the renewal of the, the calendar cycle. Um, and on the other hand, we have these sources where God asks um, deceased people did you spend your time as wisely as I did? Or did you spend too much time on what the text called tzchok, on um, laughter or enjoyment or leisure, meaning not serious things? Um, and so we do get a sense in a way that these narratives about God's time are very much about God's constant presence in the world, but also sort of prompting those who hear these stories to take a really good look at the way that they spend their time to make sure that the way they spend their time is aligned with the values that they hold, whether those are rabbinic values or other values. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. So, um, so in the conclusion, I already talked about the conclusion, but um, so you've drawn medieval and modern and even contemporary responses. Um, and I want to ask you, what is most relevant for you right now about your research that you've done? I've been joking with colleagues that when I started working on this topic, um, I used to get blank stares. And um, I would say you're probably one of the only people um, who... Um, not not the only person, um, you would not have given me a blank stare because of your own work on time in rabbinic sources. But for the most part, when I would tell colleagues that I was working on time, they would ask, what do you mean? Um, 
And um, a decade later, the response I get from colleagues is, me too, or that's so interesting. And that is especially the case in the last nine months um, as we live through this pandemic. Um, one of the things that the pandemic caused, in addition to really widespread suffering and loss, is um, a reminder that our time and the way that we organize time and experience it is um, really historically contingent and, um, and specific and something like a global pandemic really upended the way in which so many people experience time, whether that's um, different work schedules, whether it's like the acceleration of time for those who are working in hospitals and feeling like they're running against the clock to save lives, and whether that's um, people who have nothing to do um, out, out of their homes anymore and feel like uh, every day um, is just like the day that came before and after it. And so um, in a way, um, the central argument of the book, which is that time is historically contingent and culturally constructed um, and that studying time helps us see the values of a community um, is no longer an argument that needs to be made in a really convincing way because it's part of the way that people have experienced time in the last couple of months. Um, and so um, I think I, I, and I argue this in my introduction, which is that moments of crisis, whether they're political or economic or technological, often precipitate people to um, reconfigure their times and also to think about time um, in ways that are usually sort of rendered invisible. Um, and so I think we're living in one of those moments now. Um, and what I hope that I did in the book is sort of um, explain the contours of um, of the past, um, the rabbinic past, and how it imagines time. Beautiful. Well, thank you. So uh, my final question is, what are you working on these days? Um, I'm working on two projects. Um, the first is that I'm editing a volume called Time Conversations Across Disciplines with my colleague Lynn Kay. And this is a book that puts together many different scholars who work on time in many different disciplines, be they dance and literature and um, entomology and climate change, and argues that our understanding of time is enriched and nuanced when we speak about time and we think about time in all of its many dimensions. It's biological and it's um, physical and it's literary and it's religious and it's cultural contexts. So that's the first project. Um, and the second is that I started writing a feminist history of Jerusalem, um, which is not about time um, per se, um, but is a project that um, I'm really loving working on. Wow. Fabulous. Well, I'm, I'm calling from Jerusalem and yeah, um, that's why I had to turn the light on because I'm in a different time zone. <laughs> it's gotten dark here. Sarit, thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and uh, I'm wishing you all the best. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for taking the time to do this.
Okay. Be well. Bye-bye.